Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Hal Gregerson to join us today. He is the executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. His expertise expands across all areas of innovative leadership, asking the right questions cuts deeply across all of his work. He challenges organizations and individuals to question the way we think and act to build a better, more creative world. He is also the founder of 424 Project, an initiative dedicated to rekindling the provocative power of asking the right questions in adults so they can pass this crucial creativity skill on to the next generation. Welcome, Hal, to the podcast. Tiffany, great to be with you. And I love that it's all about asking questions because I have 25 minutes, so I'm going to flip the table and I get to ask you questions. (laughs) I love it. But we're going to start out with something I call bullish and bearish. It's uh, three quick little uh, questions I'm going to ask. And bullish is if you're for it, bearish is if you're against it, and uh, you know nothing too serious. So we try to keep it light to get people sort of warmed up to the conversation. So are you ready? I am ready. All right. The first one is we talk more than we listen bullish or bearish very bullish yeah i figured you'd say that (laughs) all right the next one is um being wrong is the only path to being more right (laughs) these are trick questions i would say bullish on that one as well i know you would so I, I've been I've been three for three on either one, and I think I'm getting too easy on these. So I gotta get I think I gotta step up my game. All right, the last one is a little more fun. It'll go to something you personally uh, you know have a passion for. So this third one is Polaroid pictures will make a comeback. <sighs> Bullish. They already have. <laughs> so you know i feel like well there is kind of the new version of the polaroid but it was more kind of getting back to the analog version of photography i guess ah well analog comeback Uh uh-huh that's a very interesting question and um i'd be happy to explore that at some point all right all right so there's a reason because so yeah my answer on that would be bearish in general but bullish in very unique ways Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. That's good. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So, you know, let, let's dive in because, you know, I find uh, your area of expertise, um, especially what you've just been recognized for at, uh, at the Thinkers 50, um, mm-hmm. which is how we met, uh, you know, is, is this whole concept of questions, in kind of being more curious and, and what that means and why that's important. And I'd love to start there, just kind of, you know, begin to unpack that asking questions. Cause I think people do you know, believe all day they're asking questions, but maybe they're not really doing that very well. I think a fascinating activity that you can do, or I can do, or anyone can do is literally a 24 hour question audit. It's taking note of all the questions we ask over a 24-hour period and literally, if we can, writing them down and then doing an analysis afterwards of what they were and what they were trying to accomplish. All of us get intellectually that asking questions matters, but we're very imprecise and not systematic about using that powerful skill of questioning at either work or in life. And so we have this sense that, again, questions are critical, um, but most of us don't know how to leverage that. 
And so give me an example. Give me an example of where, you know, you've worked with, you know, executives and, and they, they feel, you know, very comfortable and confident in their ability to ask, number one, ask questions, but that they actually believe that they ask more than they, they do. <laughs> I'm laughing because in general, I would suggest asking their direct reports that same question because they may have a different view on the matter in the sense that I, th- I think a lot of executives do ask questions and many of their questions are like teachers in school where they already have an answer. And so in school, the average teacher wait time after asking a question is one second. And frankly, the average wait time after many executives questions is not much longer than one second because we've all been trained and habituated into delivering the smart, quick, clever answers in order to get promoted, to make it through school, to get to the top of an organization. But that kind of approach all washes away and falls apart especially as we get on the edge of an organization or at the top where we're full of uncertainty about we're not quite sure what to do next in the spirit of your what's next. And in that space, when we're operating on the edge of uncertainty, the rub is there are no answers. Right. And because of that, it's counterintuitive. If if we instantly start searching for the right answer, it actually takes us longer to get to it versus if we started with trying to figure out What's the better question we could be asking? Yeah, and I know what you know. One of the things was you know ask why three times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just an easy you know that easy ask why ask why ask why and, and and maybe you get to the well number one you might get to the right question but you're you're really trying to get to the right answer. So the goal of it is just to get to the right answer. But if you're not asking the right question, you're not going to get to the right answer anyway. Well, and so you know. One of your colleagues, the guy named Mark Benioff, founder of Salesforce or co-founder of Salesforce, you've got, you've got this guy who was working in Oracle, Oracle, operating at the edge of the system as a customer marketing representative, constantly getting feedback about the system and wrestling with the issue of how do you have large enterprise level software be useful or even usable by small and medium sized enterprises? And so he's wrestling with that issue, and he's still, as you well know, going on these listening tours around the world trying to get feedback and being disconfirmed and being able to get uncomfortable and a different way of looking at the world. And it's all those moments, literally hundreds, if not thousands of interactions, where Mark himself got surprised, got uncomfortable, realized he was wrong about stuff, that led him to a question nobody else asked 20 years ago, which is, what if we sell enterprise-level software on the internet like Amazon sells books? That's the kind of question I care about. I mean, we all ask lots of questions every day, but very few of us ask questions that challenge fundamentally false assumptions about our world and give us energy to do something about it. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, I find that this podcast specifically for me has really helped me on my question asking. Mm. <laughs> That's the right way to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I have found that it has really ignited or reignited my sense of curiosity. Mm. And it's a format that works where I would have the same conversation with Hal if mm-hmm. we were sitting having coffee somewhere. And the whole sort of impetus of this podcast was because I got a chance to do that with so many interesting people. I wanted to capture those conversations for other people to get to kind of like listen into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um and, and sometimes I'll have people actually say, oh, I wish you would have asked this, you know, <laughs> you know, um, so I, you know, I'm always get, trying to get better. But, you know, if you were to tell somebody who was, you know, suggest to somebody who was listening, 
like besides the 24 hour exercise, you know, what one or two or three questions really start to set you up to understand the power of questions? Hmm. Well, to me, the starting point to get to a set of questions like Mark Benioff at Salesforce or Yvonne Schwernard at Patagonia saying, how can I make a living without losing my soul? Starter questions into that space could be very fundamental, like what's working, what's not, and why? And those are such simple questions, but frankly, I would argue 80 to 85% of the people working on planet Earth do not work in a psychologically safe enough environment to give honest answers to those fundamental and basic questions of what's working, what's not, and why. And if we can even get to that point, then the next step becomes, it's getting into our vocabulary and our lexicon and our way of asking questions how might, why not, what if, you know, those sorts of possibility approaches in terms of questions, I would put them at a base foundational layer, layer as literally starter questions. And then you can move up into more complex ones, but it's really having that curiosity mindset you're describing as we're moving into the world. Well, but I think if you start with what you just said, yep. the underlying requirement is the fact that you're also open to hear the answer, oh, <laughs> like totally. what's working and what's not working yeah. it is a very, it could be right. A very, um, you know, you're sort of insecure about the answer. So you just don't ask it totally. or you hear the answer and then you don't do anything with it. Well, and this is the, this is the ever present, ever constant challenge of especially senior leadership, which is we get isolated. We start having people tell us what they think we want to hear and stop telling us the things we don't want to hear. And we start building the, building this ring of steel around us um, by virtue of position and power and expertise and fill in the blank. Contrast that with someone like Scott Cook, who was the founder of Intuit. He's at the top of the organization. He's the chairman of the board of the company. His direct report is Brad Smith, the CEO. Scott is the founder. He is wealthy. He is smart. He understands the business. He has every reason to just walk around acting as if he is in charge of things. Which, you know, Scott is incredibly observant, innovative. He wandered, he, This was like a number of years ago. He would wander through the system. He'd walk into Brad's office and he'd give him a list of 15 things that he thinks we could do better at Intuit. Brad would say thank you and take that list and try his best to do something with it. But then Scott Cook, chairman of the board, gets 360-degree feedback that's basically signaling to him that when he wanders through the organization and drops those lists of 15 things to potentially do that arguably could have made the company better, they're actually disruptive for the people trying to do the work every day. Now, many chairmen would not even get a 360 about their behavior and even fewer would do something about it. And Scott did. He got executive coaching. He worked at it for several years. And so here's how Scott's interactions with Brad then changed. He'd walk into Brad's office. He'd sit down. He'd shut up. And he'd say a single question, which was, what are you wrestling with? What are you wrestling with, Brad? And then he'd be quiet. And he'd listen. And he'd explore whatever Brad was wrestling with. And at the end of it, the final question was simply, what can I do to help? So for me, I find it incredibly admirable that a person who had no you know, reason necessarily to do what I just described took the initiative 
to change his questions and by so doing actually make a big difference across Intuit. And so there's two things you said there, going back to what I just said, right? Asking the questions, being open to hear what it was, and then potentially making a slight pivot here and there, or even sometimes a significant change to align yourself to how you can just be better as a leader, you know, driving performance in a company and delivering for, in this particular case, right, the broader shareholder community. No, absolutely. And so, you know, I had the chance for the book, Questions Are the Answer, to interview 200 plus people like the ones I've described who are actually exceptional at asking great questions, these catalytic ones that change the situation. And they do what you described. Their starting point is they are always focused on solving the issues that at the end of the day will make a difference for that end user, customer, client, whatever it is. And it's more than just words. And when they wake up in the morning with that fundamental commitment, they are ruthless and relentless about figuring out, finding what are the challenges, what are the opportunities that, it, that are out there that we need to solve. And then they take that final step, which is I'm going to put myself in conditions every day, day in, day out, where I, Hal Gregerson, <laughs> I'm going to be with people and in places that are so different than my normal habitual routine that I'm going to get blindsided intentionally instead of accidentally. And when that intentional blindside happens, I've created conditions where I can be dead wrong about something, often extremely uncomfortable about it because I may have some very deep sunk costs into the system, the product, the service, the strategy, that I realize <clears throat> it's wrong now. And the natural instinct in that moment is to run like heck away from it and not face that reality. And these exceptional leaders who take organizations to places they otherwise couldn't go, that's precisely what they do. They get in those situations, they don't run from them, and the data drives them and others to a better place. And that's when just magic happens. Oh, totally. So, you know, this is like decades ago. Yvonne Schwarnard, he's a young kid in his late teens, early 20s, and he's trying to figure out how am I going to make money to live and at the same time do this stuff I love, which is rock climbing and surfing. And he distills his life down to a single question, which is, how can I make a living without losing my soul? That's a good question. And he built Patagonia on that question. He literally built Patagonia on that question. And recently, they changed their entire mission statement of Patagonia to simple. Our mission is to save our home planet. And I think to Yvonne Schwarnard, saving the home planet is his soul at this point. And it's like, how can we make a business and do that at the same time? Now, you've got Rose Marcario, who 20 years ago was working in the finance industry doing big deals. And she is being driven down the streets of New York, stops unexpectedly because an older woman is crossing the street ziggity-zaggedily. And Rose is just like, will you just get moving, lady? I got to get to my big deal I'm going to. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the lady keeps walking erratically. And then Rose wakes up and she realizes the woman on the street is walking just like her mother did. And her mother had deep psychological problems. And Rose looked into the window and saw her own reflection. And she asked the question, what have you become? That this woman's safety is less important than you making the big deal. She got out, she walked through Central Park, thought about it deeply, went and made the deal. 
took five years to think about what's her guiding Keystone question or mission or purpose. And then she bumped into Yvonne Schwernard to become the CFO where Rose's central question that was guiding her work completely aligned with what Patagonia and Yvonne Schwernard is about. And they can they have done and they continue to do that cutting edge work that you just were talking about. And so, you know, I don't know if everybody listening here is going to have those kinds of interactions and moments. And so how do you translate that to, you know, an individual contributor who's maybe only, right, responsible, maybe just for themselves, I mean, you know, ultimately, um, versus being able to have such big sweeping, uh, you know, the opportunity to make those big sweeping changes? It's totally simple. So I used to live in the Middle East. And when I was there, I had the chance to learn about an amazing story of Andres Fixter in South Africa on an orange grove farm called Cedar Citrus. Andres Fixter is responsible for watering the trees. That's about, you know, you're at the lower part of the organization here. He notices early in the season, baboons are coming onto property. And the baboons are doing that, Andres knows, because something's up. They don't usually come until the fruit's ripe because they come and eat it, and then they've got to keep the baboons off. So Andres is doing his job, but he's attending to something bigger, like, what are these baboons doing here? He follows them, but the baboons are smart, smart. And so they set up, literally, set up sentries. They set up sentries around where they were. And as soon as Andres would get close, they'd go, you know, they'd screech and scream, and they'd disappear. And Andres had no idea what they were doing. He kept at it. He was trying to figure out what's going on here. And his, his, he finally found an, a, a soft spot in their sentry system, got inside, and realized they were taking fruit from a single tree, and it made no sense because it was too early in the season. He grabs some fruit off the tree, tastes it, tries it. It's incredibly sweet. It's incredibly juicy, and it's incredibly early in the season. He then goes to his boss, and this is the moment of truth. Is it safe enough for Andres to tell his boss about what he was doing and his boss not responding with, Andres, I'm not paying you to chase the baboons. I'm paying you to water the trees. It was safe. Andres explained it. His boss didn't run from it. He embraced the, uh, the, the, the observation. And then they went to the technical people and discovered that on, this tree had genetically mutated. It was double the production of a typical tree in their groves. And they ended up over the course of the next years planting it not only across all of cedar citrus, but all across South Africa in order for them to be more competitive. All that started with a worker in a citrus grove being dead curious and inquisitive and questioning about what are those baboons up to. And then leaders around Andres being interested and supportive to figuring out how to take that forward to fruition. And that's a great story, right? Because I think, you know, I've, I've had so many people on that talk about getting out of the four walls as an executive, as a leader, as a manager, and going and talking to the people. And, you know, Tom Peters famously says kind of management by wandering around. Oh. And that's the only time you can have that type of a conversation with someone like that in the in the organization. I use that term in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's the receptionist or someone who delivers the mail or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I always use undercover boss as sort of my 
reality check on that because I'm like, first of all, I don't know why they spend, uh, you know, people who have heard me say this before, but you know, why they spend so much time on undercover boss in the U S version, putting makeup and hair, hair and makeup disguise on those executives because they could walk around. No one would recognize them anyway. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> they never leave their office. That's right. Second is all these great ideas that come from the people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sort of this, you know, innovating from within does not mean you put people in a room and go, okay, today we're going to innovate. Yeah. Okay. Go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, you have to be able, going back to where we started this conversation, to ask the right questions, yeah. to get the right people involved, and then be willing to hear what they have to say. But you have to put yourself in those situations yeah. to see those other ideas from people who actually are doing the work. Yeah. Fair? Oh, totally fair. And so, you know, so you've got Mary Barra, the current CEO of General Motors, GM, Um when she was young, she grew up in Detroit. She, her father worked for GM. She went to a Detroit university. Her first job was with GM. And then she goes and she gets her, her master's degree at Stanford in, in Silicon Valley. When she lands in Silicon Valley in her early age, in her earlier years, um, she realized this is not Detroit. Either people hate GM or they've never heard of it. And then she said, I even saw non-domestic, non-US vehicles. It was like, and then the point of this is, she then said to herself, I didn't know what I didn't know. We all get blindsided by what we don't know we don't know. And the issue is, what are we actively doing? How are we actively seeking the passive data with the questions we ask that uncover that blind spot of what we don't know we don't know? And so now fast forward I was um, on a panel with Cynthia Barris, who used to be the CEO of Anglo-American, the mining firm. And Cynthia talked about Mary Barra taking Cynthia on a tour through a GM factory assembly plant. And Mary noticed out of the corner of her eye that an employee on the line had constructed a tool to use to do his or her job that nobody else had. It was like custom built. She wandered over there and spent 20 or 25 minutes engaging with that employee about why did you do it? What problem was it solving? How much did it cost? How did you approach it? How would others approach it? And she was just trying to figure it all out, both specific and broader implications. That's what we're talking about, I think, is that sort of Mary Barr spirit. And it's absolutely crucial in this world of mobility where the use of cars is getting turned upside down. Yeah, and, and what it's going to even look like. This, this whole sort of engagement, uh, you know, around how you interact with humans and quote unquote machines and all of that changes a lot of this tremendously. Oh, totally. So I had the chance to visit with Nick Baton, who's the CEO of ASOS, is seen on screen. They, they sell clothing online and they're one of the top retailers in the world, especially to millennials. Um, plus, Tony Shea over at Zappos. Um, he was the CEO there, and Nick Baton in, in, in the UK and Tony and Tony Shea over in Las Vegas, they're exactly what you're describing. They are online businesses. They're being driven by artificial intelligence. They're being driven by employees who have to figure out ways online to connect as if they were Mary Barra walking through the um, factory floor. And what's really cool is they do. <laughs> Ranging from <laughs> Zappos, it's like, 
not contests, but they're always trying to figure out what's the longest conversation you could have with the customer on the line. And some of them have gone over 12 hours purposefully, not just to win the prize, but to make a difference for this person's life. <clears throat> and over at ASOS in, um, in, in the UK, you've got a very online intense presence of an organization, but all of their marketing and all of their approach, it's not trying to shove stuff down millennials' throats, but it's trying to open up and start conversations and actually invite questions. And what's really cool about ASOS, as well as, as Tony Shea and Zappos, is, is Tony Shea has spent 200 plus million of his own dollars to try to redevelop north, the northern part of Las Vegas in really profound ways. Over in the ASOS world, you've got them committing to these, in, these factories, both in Kenya and in the UK and elsewhere. Not factories, but sewing academies trying to help people who otherwise would have no opportunity to learn a craft and skill and make a difference in their lives. What's powerful about going to work with the question mentality is it opens up our vision beyond the minute sort of little world we live in. And it's like, there's such a bigger world out there. And how could we engage with it deeper in more productive ways? And so, you know, there, there's a, I, 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 fit, I totally borrowed this from Adam Grant and I always give him credit for it, mm. but, you know, instead of asking your children sort of what do you want to be when you grow up, ask them what problems they want to solve. Mm. And I love that. Mm. And I, whenever I say that people are like, I love that. And I'm like, okay, it's Adam's. Mm. Um, but, but going, sort of going back to what you were just saying and talking about, you know, at a young age, yeah. you know, just thinking about when I was a kid and I, 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 I think I asked why a lot <laughs> and not knowing what well, the three whys that's how you get. I mean, clearly I didn't know that yeah, that was it. Right. Yeah. I'd be like, well, why, 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 why? Yeah. And I think, cause I was curious, but what was interesting is I can remember vividly a couple of my friends, parents um, would be like, Oh my God, like, really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> stop asking me why, like, why, 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 you know, um, or just stop talking or stop asking questions or stop, you know, whatever. And, and so, Thinking about, you know, as a kid, you do you, you so many kids will just ask why. At some point they stop asking why. Yeah. Yeah. Or they stop asking the questions. Yeah. And so based on what you were just saying, you know, at, at how do you foster that curiosity question based? Because as adults, it's almost like we, you know, we follow this. Um, you know, as a kid, we did it one way, yep, yep. whatever, play, play with toys, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Right. And as adults, oh, we can't do that. Yep. You know, and as maybe that questioning, um, you know, are there are there different thoughts on that? Absolutely. And so thank you for sharing your own experience, Tiffany. It reminded me so much of Orit Gadish, who's the chairman of Bain Consulting. When she grew up, she was just like you, constantly asking the why questions. And if a teacher would say, you know, questions, Orit's hand would go up instantly and she would have at least two or three questions. And when she was in her middle school years, in her little yearbook, the teacher wrote, Arit always asked those two or three questions. She had people around her, a mother who was the same as that teacher and a father who cared about her questioning. We recently did a workshop here, a program around this questions or the answer logic with 25 leaders. And we asked those 25 people to do a question audit of their life growing up. 
So what about home? What about your K-12 schooling? What about your university schooling? What about your first professional job? What about your first managerial role? What about your current role? And we ask them in all those situations, how did authority figures respond to your questions? And for most of them, it was shutting them down. <clears throat> unfortunately and tragically. But the really cool thing is it does not have to be that way. Your parents appeared to be really supportive. So were Arit Gaudish's parents. And so were, there was really some fun things that people did to foster questions in young kids. Mike Sippy, who used to be the VP of product on Twitter, and now he's at Medium, they read multi-volume sagas like Little House on the Prairie so that their two daughters would get exposed to the realities of life and be provoked to ask parents questions about the tough things. Or go to B. Perez's family, who she's the chief sustainability officer at Coca-Cola, in their family, when someone has a challenge, they have family time, anybody can call at dinner. And whether it's their young kids or them as adults, here's my challenge. Then they go around the table and they go by youngest to oldest, asking that person all the questions they can about their challenge. Other leaders I talk to literally ask their children when they get home, what questions did you ask today? Others ask their children when they're falling asleep, what questions didn't you get a chance to ask today that you'd maybe like to ask and let's talk about them? I mean... Those are just amazing parents to me who help foster that approach, you know, at home. And and do you think that there's something there around asking questions? And, you know, as a kid, if you were an introvert, maybe you didn't ask questions. So as an adult, um, and I'm overgeneralizing on those two categories because it's the only way you could do it, you know, without talking for another hour, right? So I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. But do you think that there is something to be said that maybe let's say I'm in a meeting and mm -hmm. I'm a leader and mm -hmm. I'm trying to draw someone into the conversation who may be more of an introvert. Yeah. Questions is a great way to do that, right? To get them to participate in the conversation. Yeah, I agree. And the challenge is if I approach that person who's a little reticent, perhaps an introvert to expose themselves and ask a question or make a comment, our normal modes of conversation are so habituated and so habitual that we sometimes can't get out of those routines. So I found 20 years ago a method that actually is a deep and wonderful invitation to introverts to engage their questions with the world. And here's the method, Tiffany. <laughs> it's pretend I'm the, man, I'm the leader of that meeting and I know that some people are not speaking up. But we have an issue that we care deeply about. Here's what I would do if I were the manager of the meeting. I would say at the beginning of the meeting, you know, we all care about this issue. We're a bit stuck on it. We're trying to make progress. Let's take four minutes, just four minutes, and we're going to use the whiteboards. We're going to use post-it notes or whatever the medium is. We're going to write down as many questions as we possibly can in four minutes about this issue. And there are two rules that are going to guide us in doing this. I call it a question burst. Rule number one, no answers to any of the questions. Rule number two, no explanations about why we're asking the question. Because all of those words before a question and all of the answers after a question, all of those words walk us into a corner where we're already stuck and they keep introverts out of the conversation. So imagine stripping a question of anything before, anything after, asking nothing but questions. If you do that for four minutes with your team, like I just described, there is a super high probability that people will be so unnerved 
by this weird way of engaging, only asking questions, that there will be quiet spaces that otherwise weren't there. And as a result, the introvert on the edge of the table will come out and will expose and will offer their questions. And frankly, they often have some of the best ones because they've been quietly watching what's been going on anyway. And that's fantastic. I mean, I think that's just a great way to wrap up this conversation around questioning as an adult, the power behind it, you know, the decisions we can make if we're raising the next generation of leaders on how to make sure that, you know, they're doing things correctly and really taking the opportunity um, to listen. Because I think that that's the, that's the power behind the question is if, if you're willing to ask it, you have to be willing to listen. And if you listen and you don't do anything, then don't ask the question, right? It's just sort of ultimately um, a waste of everybody's time. Okay, yeah. Can I ask you a quick, uh, give you a quick example on that? Absolutely. So I bumped into Mark Benioff a few years ago at the World Economic Forum Davos meeting. And I asked Mark, how do you ask such good questions? And Mark looked at me right in the eye and he said, listen. And then he was quiet. And I think he was watching me to see how do you, Hal Gregerson, listen to things? And then we embarked after a few seconds onto a 15 minute or so conversation about what does it mean to listen in a way that would evoke the better question. So I think you're spot on with the importance of that, of the power of the pause. It's really powerful. And that was my pause. <laughs> but I don't have 15 seconds. Otherwise, people would have gone like, flick, flick, flick. Like, what happened to the podcast? So I, was my- I was wondering the same thing. I <laughs> know. Oh, See, how I had you, didn't I? I had, I had you at the pause. I had you at the pause. Well, so thank you so much for spending time with us today, Hal, on the What's Next podcast. And I'd love everybody to be able to keep in touch with what you do and what you have coming up. So give give our listeners uh, ways in which they can continue to follow your great work. Uh, HalGregerson.com, all one word.com is one way to engage. You can get a newsletter, you get in, you know, in first part of my regular conversation around the things I'm learning and exploring with questions. Um, so I'd love to... Um, Keep the conversation going because every question is an answer and every answer is a stepping stone to the next question. It'd be great. Oh, well, great. Well, thank you again, Hal, for spending time with us today. And I appreciate you. Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, Same to you. Um, You asked great questions. It was a conversation to remember for me. Thank you. What a fun conversation with Hal, all about asking questions and actually stopping for a moment and thinking Do you ask enough questions? And then do you listen to the answers to those questions? And then do you do something different based on what those answers are? Are you willing to be really vulnerable and say, what's working? What's not working? What could I be doing better? It's all towards this journey of just being better employee, better colleague, better boss, better friend, whatever it might be. So I thought that was really fantastic. And I really enjoyed his recommendation on doing a question audit for 24 hours audit how many questions you actually ask versus how much you just talk and see what that's like and should you be asking more questions so i hope you enjoyed this podcast and this issue and this version of the what's next podcast with hal gregerson please continue to follow me subscribe share with your friends leave some feedback i look forward to having you join me again next time thanks a lot